Welcome to Stuff Mom Never Told You from HowStuffWorks.com. Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm Kristen. And I'm Caroline. And uh, let's just go ahead and start off by saying two words. Mm -hmm. Downton Abbey. Um, Lady Mary doppelganger of mine. Uh-huh. I'm going to go ahead and own up to that. Although, uh, O'Brien has a has a soft spot in my heart. Really? Because of those curls. She's got the best, the most iconic hairstyle on television right now. Yeah. No, I love, I love the head housekeeper woman. Lady. What's her name? Uh, it's not Mrs. Patmore. No, that's the cook. Yeah, but I love her. Okay, so we are talking about Downton Abbey because it is kind of a a, a very romanticized look at the upstairs-downstairs division of labor between wealthier people and domestic service, all those domestic workers. And when we thought about doing an episode on on maids and domestic workers, we're like, oh, that's a fantastic idea, Downton Abbey, (laughs) tra-la-la-la. Well, there is so much more to it than just, you know, a happy-go-lucky Downton Abbey household. Yeah. Well, in reading all of the stuff that we read about domestic service of every stripe, you know, in in all these regions throughout time, my my main takeaway was just that really, I mean, domestic service exists and has existed to kind of give this appearance of leisure. Mm-hmm. For the upper classes in particular, um, especially, you know, in, in the era that we're talking about with Downton Abbey, um, this whole like, oh, we don't have to lift a finger. We're just lying about. Well, it was interesting, too. Um, I was listening to Fresh Air recently on NPR, and they were interviewing the Downton Abbey creator, Julian Fellows, and he was talking about how they were going over the, the differences in address, where obviously, you know, Lady Mary, you know, she's Lady Mary, whereas O'Brien is just O'Brien. We don't even know her first name, and that's because of the class difference. And Julian Fellows was talking about how, you know, some of the appeal of the show is tied up in that in terms of uh, this comfort that people find in everyone knowing their place. And in Down Abbey terms, maybe that's a little bit more approachable and like easier to stomach. But then when you start talking about domestic service and people knowing their place, when we start talking about the United States, mm-hmm. oh boy, does it get so much more complicated because race becomes such a huge factor in that right. as well. But let's start over uh, in the UK because we're going to focus largely on uh, the UK and the US for this. And let's talk about domestic service in Britain. Yeah, it really uh, pervaded Britain's economic, social, and cultural life. And one of the major sources of our information is Lucy DeLapp of Cambridge. She wrote a book called Knowing Their Place, Domestic Service in 20th Century Britain. And she says that during the first half of the 20th century, domestic service, that sector, employed the largest numbers of women of any labor market sector in Britain. Yeah, and perhaps because of the that huge the 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 impact 
of that industry. She writes that domestic service has served as a foundational narrative among the stories British people tell about the last century and its changes. And it's true because you see those numbers going down, for instance, um, as the schooling ages rise. Essentially, as more opportunities in school and work become open to women, the their numbers in domestic service also shrink. Yeah, and in the Victorian era in particular, having butlers, maids, housekeepers, chauffeurs, this was all a sign of respectability. So it really wasn't just your aristocrats and your royals who had these teams of, of servants. It was it was really anyone with a little money who could hire a team to do all this work around the house for them. Now, DeLapp does point out that the lower middle classes tended to not be able to f- uh, afford such a big team, so they might only have one maid who was expected to do everything. Right, and at that time, being that maid, being the, the do-it-all maid for a lower middle class, class home was considered the worst possible job you could get. Whereas working at Downton Abbey would be a good gig because you're working for wealthy people. You have a team of people who all have uh, duties delegated to them. Whereas uh, if you're employed by a not quite as wealthy family, you're going to be doing so much more and your hours would be horrendous. Kind of like being a domestic service worker today. Yeah. Well, and rank, rank played a big part among the domestic servants also. There were senior servants like Carson the butler at Downton. Carson! Uh, who have a lot of power and take everything very seriously. They sort of have the run of the house and make sure everything is moving smoothly. And I thought it was interesting. I didn't know this, but prior to the Victorian era, there wasn't necessarily a really standard domestic service uniform. It was the Victorians, those wily old Victorians, who came up with the standard black dress and white apron. And this whole thing was, as you can imagine, to disguise personal identities. Like, let's let them fade into the background and just do their their domestic work around the house. We don't notice them. Their uniforms just set them apart. But there's always this tension, it seems like, between the domestic service workers and the people who are employing them. Because take, for instance, in 1899, when domestic service is still huge, uh, you have the publication of, and this is coming from The Economist, where they're talking about it, the publication of The Servant Problem, an attempt at its solution that talks about cases of, quote unquote, disease and deformity caused by the inefficiency and carelessness of nurses and nursemaids, bold-faced girls in employment agencies with the cheek to question prospective employers about hours and perks, essentially people not minding their place. But then, after World War I, the servant problem becomes not so much, you know, all these women saying, hey, I, I want more uh, specified job duties, but saying, hey, I'm going to find a job somewhere else, not cleaning up your mess. Yeah, World War One also really changed the landscape. It offered women increased opportunities in the paid labor market, so retail and clerical work ended up leading to a dramatic fall in the number of residential servants. And in the period 1914 to 1918, there was an estimated 2 million women replacing men in employment. And this is coming from Joanna Burt, Professor Joanna Burt for BBC History, uh, writing about this. And the proportion of women in total employment during this time jumps from 24% in July 1914 to 37% in November 1918. 
And then once we have World War II and the rise of the quote-unquote servantless home among the middle class in particular, you see the major drop as well in domestic service because you have things like labor-saving devices and more uncluttered furniture stylings to essentially make uh, the upkeep of your home easier. This is also when we're seeing the rise of things like home economics, household engineering, turning uh, home upkeep into a science. But it's still highly gendered, especially in the UK, with products like Susan Mops, Sheila Clothes Errors, and Marigold Rubber Gloves. And it, it had been, I mean, very gendered leading up to this anyway. Um, uh, according to DeLapp, again, between 1921 and 1931, the number of men employed as indoor domestic servants did rise, but more than 99% worked in institutional services like hotels and schools, as opposed to being the, the nursemaid or, or the maid in the house. Mm-hmm. Well, yeah, and, and we'll talk about this later, too, but that comes up again with, uh, you know, janitors are men, right. maids are women. Why is that? A lot of times it has to do with the indoor versus is the outdoor. The domestic sphere is where women's work happens. And in these large homes, it is the women of the house, the mistresses, who are overseeing all of these employees, not the, uh, you know, the Lord Granthams. Yeah. But World War II definitely uh, ushered in some changes. And the idea of, quote unquote, doing for oneself became more acceptable among upper and middle class families. And the media sort of uh, latched onto this also. But it, quote, bol- it was bolstered by the rising status of a class neutral housewife identity. And this this identity that's rising is accompanied by, like Kristen was saying, a rebranding of domestic work as scientific. I thought it was fascinating that even in the 1960s, you have ready-made food being marketed to, quote, fill the gap left by the vanished race of servants. And in the 1970s, the Times of London was still referring to certain recipes as, quote, unquote, servantless dishes. And yeah, well, a lot of that whole attitude about servants was, like we said, holding on. One thing that was changing was the ethnic factor. And uh, DeLapp writes that in the late 20th century, ethnic differences became more of a significant feature among domestic service workers than did gender as more Eastern European immigrants arrived in Britain. And so by 1951, and I know this is going back, but by 1951, the men in particular employed in indoor domestic service were mostly foreign. Yeah, and uh, this whole immigrant factor plays a huge role, too, in the patterns of domestic service in the United States. Because uh, if you're looking at the late 19th century in uh, the in the North, especially among upper middle classes in the U.S., a lot of times it's Irish and German immigrants who are working in domestic service. But as soon as larger factories start to open, they scram and go for the factory jobs And those domestic service jobs are largely taken over by black women. In the 1940s, black women accounted for 60% of all domestic service jobs. Yeah, and uh, there was a really interesting article at NJ.com talking about this particular domestic service work in New Jersey, the state of New Jersey. And, you know, Kristen mentioned factories and how a lot of the, like, Irish immigrants skedaddled and went to the factories. But this article says factory floors and store counters were mostly closed to African-American women. And so they faced the double-barreled discrimination against their race and gender 
that funneled them into that domestic work. And so they point out that in 1940, and this is just in New Jersey, 72.3% of the 32,000 black women were domestic service workers. And by 1950 in the state, 43% of black women still worked in private service. Now, I feel like in the U.S., though, perhaps because of uh, books that were then turned into movies like The Help, mm-hmm. um, a lot of times when we think about black women in domestic service, we're thinking about the South in particular. Right. And historians Vanessa May and Rebecca Sharpless uh, were, were responding to The Help and the popularity of The Help because that book got a lot of criticism mm-hmm. for for how it was written, how it presented, you know, racial issues and whatever. And, you know, we, we won't even really go there, will we? Yeah, I mean, well, I mean, essentially having, you know, the white character Skeeter uh, sort of rescue these helpless black women. Yeah, but Vanessa May and Rebecca Sharpless on the UNC Press blog point out that there there are some things that were left out, some issues that came along with being an African-American maid in white homes in the South during this time. One of those things being violence that black women experienced at the hands of white men and whose homes they worked. Because in the book, in The Help, most of the violence is seen at home. Mm-hmm. So when, when the women go home, it's at the hands of their husband. And also the issue of organization, formal organization and activism. And there are several examples that they cite, like uh, Jackson, Mississippi in 1866, black maids went on strike for higher wages. In New York in 1934, domestic worker Dora Jones led the formation of the Domestic Workers Organization. And in Atlanta in 1968, Dorothy Bolden formed the National Domestic Workers Workers Union of America. But at the same time, there are these very problematic relationships going on, particularly between female domestic workers and the women of the house who are essentially their bosses. And we, we read about this in the book, The Maid Narratives, Black Domestics and White Families in the Jim Crow South by Catherine Van Warmer and Charlotta Suddeth. And they cite sociologist Judith Rollins, who characterizes the relationship between black Southern maids and mistresses as as maternalism and a unique form of exploitation because these women are often infantilized. Um, they uh, are talked down to. They, If they are educated and they are intelligent, those are not qualities that they tend to let shine because a lot of times the white mistresses don't want to don't want to hear any of that. They just want, you know, essentially like docile workers to do what they're told. And there's also, too, this um, plays into something called the happy slave fantasy, where, you know, everybody's just getting along. You think about uh, Gone with the Wind and the whole idea of the, the happy mammy just taking care of things and going about her business. Right. Well, that, yeah, that idea of the faithful slave narrative and Uh, as they say, clinging to Mammy, just like this generation of people who were raised by black maids not wanting to let go of that dynamic. But, I mean, that dynamic, as cherished as it might have been by a generation who was raised by these maids, it really was sort of based on a relationship of forced dependency, as Van Wormer and Suddeth point out, and not to mention the whole unequal social etiquette. And, I mean, this is not just black maids in the American South. This is also going back to Downton Abbey era and domestic service in Britain. Just, you know, like Kristen said, Lady Mary was Lady Mary, but O'Brien was just O'Brien. So there is that unequal like, well, I'm going to kind of treat you like family and you're going to take care of my most intimate needs, but 
you're still way lower down on this on the totem pole than I am. Yeah, and the civil rights movement in the United States did a lot to address issues of inherent racism and bigotry that was tied into that uh you know the whole knowing your place kind of thing. But the domestic service sector is still problematic today because of the nature of the work. You are going to someone else's house. And a lot of times the boundaries between, you know, your job and everything else are are very fuzzy. And the intimacy of being in someone else's home and their domain, possibly interacting with the family, possibly taking care of and raising children, things can get complicated and abusive very quickly. Yeah. Well, but also, I mean, the whole system, if unless you're at a, um, well, even if you are at a uh, corporate maid service type thing, um, a lot of the times women and men who are in this type of work are sort of lost mm-hmm. because ma- they're not accounted for or they're being paid under the table. And so they're not necessarily going to benefit from any sort of labor laws or time off or, you know, any sort of bonus that being in the regular market would afford you. Well, and as you as you talked about, Caroline, um, how in the, the UK after World War II, when a lot of those domestic service jobs that were held by uh, by women, British women, uh, who then went off to find other jobs that were then open to them, and immigrants took the place. Now we see a similar thing going on in the United States. Um, in 1980, for instance, only 7% of those domestic service jobs were still being held by black women. But now we have documented and undocumented immigrants who are taking over a large proportion of domestic work. And especially for undocumented immigrants, this is opening up a host of problems because, uh, you know, there's fear of deportation if they speak out, if things are getting abusive, essentially being taken advantage of. Yeah, and this was just on NPR. They were just talking about this. This was a report compiled by the UN International Labor Organization that this is the first report of its kind that they've done that found that nearly there are nearly 53 million domestic workers in the world, and the overwhelming majority are women, 83%. And the overwhelming majority are not protected by labor laws. And that estimate, uh, that number estimate of 53 million, they point out is probably low because it really depends on the countries reporting it. And the report actually excludes those below the age of 15. So the number could be a lot higher as far as women and men who are working in private service. Now, for the the maids and housekeeping cleaners, as they are classified um, in the United States, to get some uh, more concrete data on what that occupational outlook is, we can go to the Bureau of Labor Statistics and find some not-so-heartening news. For instance, in 2010, the median pay for a maid in the U.S. was only $19,300 per year, which translates to $928 per hour. And the places where uh, people in this occupation are often employed is like traveler accommodations, such as hotels, casinos, and the like, hospitals, building services, which includes janitors, landscapers, upholstery services, things like that, but also nursing care facilities and homes for the elderly. And it turns out that the top paying states for this job are Hawaii, D.C., okay, not a state, but an area, uh, New York, Nevada, and Massachusetts. 
Yeah, and uh, the National Domestic Workers Alliance just published a national survey in 2012, also the first of its kind. It seems like a lot more attention is finally starting to be paid to domestic service workers. And I have a sampler of more depressing statistics um, because, for instance, 67% of live-in workers, live-in workers uh, also are at most risk of exploitation. Mm-hmm. Uh, 67% of them are paid below minimum wage with a median hourly wage of 615. 65% don't have health insurance. Only 4%, by contrast, have employer-provided insurance. of workers suffered from work-related wrist, shoulder, elbow, or hip pain. A third of them have less than 12 years of schooling. Uh, And and I could go on and on and on. It is not, uh, it's not a good situation. No, but, well, but it definitely is not going to slow down anytime soon. I mean, just because they, they don't have the protections they need doesn't mean people are going to start protesting and leaving. Um, they predict that the need for these domestic workers and maids, housekeepers, etc., will just continue to grow because more women are joining the labor force, they're saying, and our population is aging. Yeah, and the situation even gets worse if you are an ethnic minority or um, an undocumented immigrant. Um, this is also coming from the National Domestic Workers Alliance. Um, 36% of the people they surveyed were undocumented. And if you are undocumented, you are typically paid less. Um, you're less likely to, to complain about poor working conditions for fear of deportation, as I mentioned earlier. And listen to this. The median hourly wage was $2.13 more for white workers compared to Latinas, and that's documented. Documented, um, and a dollar fourteen higher than black workers. Hmm. So there's still this kind of uh, ethnic discrimination that's going on. Yeah, I mean, there's also the language barrier issue that comes with people coming to this country and going into this type of work. Many workers who don't speak good English are, might be unaware that mm-hmm. they even have any rights and are therefore more vulnerable to exploitation and abuse. Yeah, and so I, I mean, while it is. Certainly fun and escapist to watch Downton Abbey and, you know, witness these little relationships between the upstairs and downstairs and all of the intrigue and scandal that goes along with that. Um, the fact of the matter is there is a very real problem with domestic service that's going on, not just in the U.S., but obviously around around the world. I mean, it's not all doom and gloom. I mean, it is it is pretty bad when you think about undocumented workers being taken advantage of or abused. But the New York Domestic Workers Bill of Rights was the first U.S. legislation of its kind, and it sets enforceable standards for overtime pay, rest days, paid days off, and other worker protections. Because, I mean, when you think about this work, it's not just that you're working all day long and having to drive all over town to all these different houses, but it's just like physically challenging work. I mean, you were really hurting your body. Um, also, another another good piece of news is that in 2011, the International Labor Organization that we mentioned earlier adopted Convention Number 189, establishing for the first time global labor standards for the treatment of domestic workers. Yeah, and, and those kind of standards are so imperative. Um, just to wrap things up, because um, this is coming from Bridget Anderson, who wrote Doing the Dirty Work, the Global Politics of Domestic Labor. Um, she says, the problem for the worker is that her work is not not definable in terms of tasks performed, nor is there any objective standard of cleanliness or tidiness that she must meet. The standard is imposed by the household manager, and that standard can always be raised. Yeah. So 
things to think about yeah. while you're watching Downton Abbey. Did your family ever have a maid or housekeeper? We briefly had um, a maid who came once a week on Mondays. Her name was Mary. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, I mean, I remember her coming for a few years. Yeah. My, my parents, we, I grew up with Pat coming to our house. I think it was every week. And then once I got older and wasn't making so much of a mess, I guess, uh, she started coming less frequently. And now they have someone who comes, I think, every, once every two weeks. Yeah. So, I mean, it's, I, I could not do that all day, every day. I mean, that is physically punishing work. I mean, and obviously, like, these, these jobs are employing people who, need jobs it's not an argument to get rid of domestic service um but there is a lot of reform that is obviously needed in a big way yeah so um folks who are in domestic service if you're listening write us let us know your thoughts on this stuff um anybody else welcome to write us as well mom stuff at discovery.com is where you can send your letters but Kristen, before we get to listener letters Well, I've got a letter here from Ashley in response to our episode on mothers-in-law. And she writes, I'm a lesbian, and I've been with my partner for almost four years, and both of our mothers are excellent mothers-in-law. They're very progressive, liberal, and strong-willed women who didn't miss a beat when we respectively, on our own before we were even dating, came out to them as ladies who love the ladies. My partner's mom is completely inclusive of my being part of her family, calls me, and emails me whenever she's concerned about my well-being. Uh, my partner's family even came up with the affectionate term daughter outlaw, highlighting that though a relationship isn't legal, it damn well should be. Aw. So thank you to Ashley for writing in. And I have a letter here from Jenna, who also wanted to share her stories about her mother-in-law experience. She says that my situation is one that I'm sure a lot of people in the younger generations have two mothers-in-law. My husband's parents divorced when he was in middle school and they have both remarried. They couldn't be more opposite. My husband's stepmother is amazing, down-to-earth, loving, and supportive. I often call her up when I need help or advice on things in the domestic arena. She's always willing to help out but never give unsolicited advice. The love she shows me and my husband feels unconditional and altruistic. My husband's biological mother, on the other hand, can only be described as a real piece of work. She's selfish, manipulative, and complicated. When I share stories about her among my girlfriends, I always win the Monster-in-Law Award. Every gift and kind gesture is full of hidden meanings and motivations, and every family vacation is a dreaded ordeal. It's exhausting. I guess I have the best and worst of the mother-in-law situation. I'd like to offer a little advice for all of the mothers-in-law out there. Next time you criticize us, please remember that we're new at this. Life is tough. And we're just doing the best we can. And thanks to Jenna and Ashley and everyone else for writing in to momstuff at discovery.com. You can send your letters there or you can hit us up on Facebook, like us while you're at it, and follow us on Twitter at momstuffpodcast. You can even follow us on Tumblr where it's stuffmomnevertoldyou.tumblr.com. And if you'd like to get a little bit smarter this week, you know where to head. It's to our website, howstuffworks.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com. 